Hey guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I interview Eric Trexler. We're talking all things reverse dieting. Have you ever considered a reverse diet? Should you do a reverse diet? What are the claims made and what does the science say? I think there's some amazing practical take-homes, which are probably in part two. You're going to listen to part one here. Definitely stick around for both of them or at least listen to both of them because Eric explains things incredibly well. And I've certainly heard about reverse dieting for a long, long time. And I think it's about time someone delved into what this science really, really does say. And I think Eric has done a fantastic job of explaining that. I'm not going to ruin anything. You're going to discover whether you should reverse diet or not and what applications for reverse dieting there may well be. And as a reminder, guys, on a completely separate note, are you wanting to mini cut? Do you want to lose some fat fast? Do you want to potentiate some more massing, get your appetite back, drop a bit of fat before a holiday or something like this? Well, our mini cut movement group coaching service might just be for you. You can check that out in the description box below. But without further ado, let's get into the podcast. Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Eric Trexler back on the show. Uh, it was about a year ago we last spoke, and I can't quite believe a year has passed. Uh, time just ultimately flies, as they say. It was episode 256, we we're talking all about vegan diets. And this time we're going to be talking probably about a completely different subject that has no relation to vegan diets. But uh, how have you been keeping, Eric? How I know you said we we're just talking off air and... The, the internet might be a bit sketchy because you've got a storm rolling in. So uh, thank Eric for kind of taking the time to do this. And I don't know. I don't know what else you do, but <laughs> you can't like stop the storm. It kind of happens around you. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, thanks for having me back on. Yeah. I, I forgot that the last time was the vegan diet. I, I, I thought it was the P ratio one. But yeah, I'm very happy and fortunate to be a, a regular uh, returning contributor here. I really appreciate the invitation. Uh, and just to, uh, to, to be clear, I'm very far away from the ocean. <laughs> so the hurricane is rolling in, in a very weakened state, but I just live in an area where there's a bunch of old trees. They like to fall and trees that fall sometimes knock out power lines. So we will do our best to get an episode here and I'm looking forward to it. For sure. Yeah. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure talking to you. And I think I was saying this to, I just had Eric Helms on and it'd been I can't, uh, too many years uh, since I had Eric on. He's a little bit less of a convenient time <laughs> to bring on, but uh, I think I get my dose of you guys. Now you all have your own podcasts. So uh, I think a lot of people get their dose uh, from listening to these. And I feel like it hasn't been that long since I've spoken to you, at least kind of keeping up with all of that. So uh, it's probably good though, to get you back on and have a chat because, and this is something we're going to be talking about today is uh, reverse diets. I think it's, it's similar to the P ratio sort of idea and that I I think Eric, you do a fantastic job of digging into and just completely just not destroying, but like going into every single like what are people saying about it? What's the science say? And because yeah. P ratio was certainly one of those things, I'd definitely been guilty of it of think, thinking like, oh, if I'm leaner, I'm going to partition more kind of of my nutrients to uh, sorry muscle growth versus fat gain, and that became like this pervasive almost almost myth now at this point. And so you did a great job of kind of disseminating that information and going through it all and what does the science really say and i think the same goes for reverse dieting i think it's still in the evidence-based scene i think a lot of people 
have a, a good view of it and it kind of aligned with your article and your thoughts. But I still think there's quite a lot of people who are using it. And I think particularly in the article, you went over why you think maybe some people still think it's doing something for them when maybe it isn't, which I thought was very interesting. But I won't kind of ruin it and uh, give like the, the the crunch of what the article was, but it, it was fantastic. So I don't know if you want to talk about initially kind of what you would define as reverse dieting for the audience. Sure. Yeah. And even before that, I, I kind of want to just frame where I'm coming from here. So this is similar to the P ratio kind of exploration. Uh, I think one of the things that excites me about what I do for a living is exploring things that are on the periphery of evidence-based practice, right? So things that are generally viewed neutrally or positively within the evidence-based fitness world that have a surprising lack of empirical support. You know, I, I really like to dive into those topics and say, okay, reputation aside, how supported is this concept? You know, and so that really excites me. Like I, I don't enjoy, you know, the, the kind of content creation where you're debunking something that everyone listening to this already doesn't believe, right? You're like, yeah, someone out there on a blog believes this, but like no one in our little evidence-based world even believes it, right? So those kind of debunking pieces of content don't excite me as a person who writes, but digging into concepts like this are really fun because, you know, like you said, they're, they're kind of embraced in evidence-based fitness, but you rarely get a lot of deep dives into the underlying evidence. So that's what I wanted to do in this article. And reverse dieting is uh, a really interesting concept, uh, which I take, uh, I, I used to say like, hey, I'm not taking credit for reverse dieting, but I, to the best of my knowledge, was the first person who mentioned it in a peer-reviewed paper and kind of brought it into that world. And subsequently, other papers have since. I, I used to say like, hey, I'm not taking credit for this. And, and now after digging in deeper, as more research has come out, I, I find myself saying, hey, I'm... I'm not on the hook for this. I'm not taking the blame for for kind of ushering this into the the evidence based uh, space. But reverse dieting is uh, essentially exactly what it sounds like. So when we when we diet, you know, in in this context, we're assuming a fat loss diet. When we diet, we are incrementally going to be reducing calories over time, right? So we might start a diet at a particular calorie level. In most cases, uh, you know, the kind of standard approach to dieting will involve incremental reductions in energy intake from there because we're getting smaller, we're burning fewer calories. For some of us, metabolic adaptation will set in to varying degrees. And so to, to facilitate a steady rate of weight loss, we'll have to reduce calories incrementally. Reverse dieting is the reverse of that. It's incrementally increasing calorie intake over time. And there are really two main applications where you see reverse dieting talked about frequently. One would be at the post-competition phase for physique athletes. So a lot of a lot of people will say, okay, you have done this really arduous diet. You've gotten into contest shape. You'd like to stay lean in the off season if you can, but you'd also like to obviously be eating more than you are now. And you'd like to feel better than you feel now because you probably have some symptoms of relative energy deficiency in sport. So one application is like, what if we could facilitate recovery from a really arduous diet without accepting 
you know, substantial amounts of fat regain or, or really carefully attenuating fat regain. So one is like one application is recovery from that type of diet. The other application is basically someone who says, hey, I have a history where I've really struggled with weight loss. And right now I'm I'm not even losing weight. I'm eating like 1200 calories a day. What can I do? For a lot of people, reverse dieting is almost framed as like the last resort where it's like, oh, well, what's happening is your energy expenditure is atypically suppressed because of a history of dieting. And if we do reverse dieting, uh, if we just get you in the smallest possible, you know, positive energy balance, rather than storing that extra energy as fat, your body will upregulate energy expenditure and will basically unravel or reverse these metabolic adaptations to energy expenditure that you're currently experiencing. So the idea there is if we just go slow enough with calorie increases, we can kind of uh, nudge your energy expenditure upward and upward and upward. All of a sudden, instead of maintaining at you know 1,200 calories, we've got you up to 2,400 calories. And now it's going to be super easy to diet because we just have to cut you down to like 2100 or, or 2000, right? So the idea is building up what some people will call metabolic capacity so that a next the next diet will be easier. Um, and you know, without getting, I'm sure we'll get into little elements as we go, but just to be super clear on the front end, as I dug into the, the research here, and, and much of it has come out in the last few years, you know, as I've dug into this research, both of those applications seem essentially untenable. They're, they're, they're extremely difficult to justify. And it's not just, you know, a lot of people will look at that and say, well, you know, just because there's no evidence saying it works, it doesn't mean it can't work. But this is a case where I, I do believe that the best evidence available contradicts those applications. So it's not a lack of evidence. It's a, a contradiction with the existing evidence. I think that's really well put in terms of the kind of the two applications, I would say they're the ones that I hear if, and like you said, if you think it's probably misapplied, they're the ones I hear where I think it's like, again, it, it seems misapplied. I think maybe there's some we can talk. Uh, I can only actually think of one scenario where I think it's maybe applicable. And that's basically a very niche bodybuilder in a prep, uh, which I'm sure you've kind of thought about as well. And maybe we'll touch on, but uh, I think that second one you spoke about, I think a the 3DMJ guys have done a great job of kind of promoting the recovery diet post-show and how important that is as a better kind of alternative to the reverse diet. So I think a lot of people have kind of come around to that. But I think that second scenario you talked about, I think there's a lot of people that still think, because it sounds kind of rational, oh, you can creep up your intake a little bit and the body just like adapts upwards and kind of, you, I guess it's similar to like stoking the metabolic fire type of deal. And then, yeah, you're on more food. So surely now when you take 500 calories off, you start losing a pound where previously you were stored and maintaining. And I think, like you said, new evidence has come out to show that that's simply not the case, unfortunately. But I don't know if you want to go into like what metabolic adaptation precisely is and how it differs between individuals. Is that a good place to start? Yeah, that, that is a good place to start. Um, you know, and, and before I get into that, I do want to acknowledge like some people are going to hear this episode and say, uh, you know, I, well, I've done reverse dieting and I liked it. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about reasons why uh, a very knowledgeable, astute dieter 
would absolutely have reason to believe that reverse dieting did something special physiologically. But I want to talk about why there are some really convincing illusions that make reverse dieting seem a lot more compelling and effective than it really is. Um, but but I, I, I guess what I want to uh, avoid is the idea that anyone should feel negatively about having optimism about reverse dieting or believing it to work because I had optimism about it back in 2013, 2014. Like I said, most of the research that I lean on, uh, there's like one piece of research that came out in the 40s that I should have leaned on harder years ago. But a lot of this stuff has come out in the last couple of years, right? So we learn as we go and we we continue to update our understanding of, of how the body works. So no one should feel like they have to defend their decision to reverse diet uh, in the present or in the past. But what I want to talk about in this uh, this episode is, uh, you know, w- what is the evidence? You know, does it actually work? And, you know, what are some alternatives? But starting out with metabolic adaptation, right? So energy restriction uh, occurs over the short term and the long term, right? We have short term and long term energy uh, sensors, you know, regulating systems in our body that help us, you know, stay nourished in the short term so that we don't do like a 12-day a fast without thinking about it. It's like, oh, yeah, I just never got hungry. That That's not good for survival. Uh, similarly, our, we don't want to just accidentally get to 4% body fat and say, oh, actually, you know, now I have no energy for reproduction and immune function, right? That, that's also not good. So we have these strong systems in place that help us at least understand what we're doing in terms of energy restriction. So when someone starts dieting, there are two things that uh, promote metabolic adaptation. That's uh, being in an active energy deficit. So acutely just being in a deficit uh, day over day. And then the gradual long-term depletion of fat stores. You know, the, the fat we carry around our emergency reserves in the form of fat tissue, those start to deplete over time. And we have, you know, s- systems in our body that, that, take stock of that and say, oh, hey, we we have a bit of an energy crisis here. So those two things dictate metabolic adaptation. And in terms of what it is, um, the, the best way to describe it is just talk to a bodybuilder who's eight weeks out and say, how's your life going? Right. And, and they'll tell you everything you need to know about metabolic adaptation. So total daily energy expenditure goes down more than we should expect based on losses in body tissue. So of course, as you become a smaller person with less tissue, your energy expenditure is going to go down, but it goes down more than we would predict from that loss of tissue. We start to see that non-exercise activity starts to really get decreased. Um, you know, being in a deficit alone tends to reduce uh, resting energy expenditure more than we would predict based on body mass. Uh, so we have these reductions in energy expenditure that ultimately cause us to to reach one of two fates along the way: either our rate of weight loss slows down, or to keep our rate of weight loss stable, we have to make further reductions in calories. The other side of metabolic adaptation, aside from just energy expenditure, is essentially completely parallel with what we call relative energy deficiency in sport. It's this whole uh, series of physiological side effects to dieting. Uh, So, for example, you talk to a, a bodybuilder late in prep, 
their um, um, you know their their libido is probably quite low, right? It's it's a very reliable generalizable thing, and what's causing that you usually changes in sex hormones, which are ultimately dictated by the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus is that key center that is integrating signals of short term and long term energy availability, and when when the hypothalamus gets the message that we don't have enough energy to do what we're trying to do, it starts shutting down a lot of things, non-exercise activity, uh, you know, sex hormone production, thyroid hor hormone production. Uh, it starts ramping up hunger signals, starts down-regulating satiety signals. Uh, so, so basically, you know, when you talk to someone and they say, yeah, I, I have low libido in prep, that that's relative energy deficiency in sport. And that's essentially uh, an offshoot of metabolic adaptation. We talk about people with hormone panels that are out of whack during prep. It's the same kind of deal. Uh, disruption of the menstrual cycle. Again, it's this whole cluster of uh, side effects associated with a lack of energy. So that's metabolic adaptation in a nutshell. And like I said, the two main drivers are lack of fat mass uh, you know, or depletion of fat stores and simply being in an energy deficit currently. I think uh, that kind of thought process of long-term and shorter-term kind of senses, just when you put it like that, it's like it makes complete sense. Like we have our body fat stores, which are obviously energy availability for us to do general things that we might need to do. And then obviously what we're eating on a day-to-day -day basis, that kind of shorter-term feedback loop. Uh, I love that thought process of, I don't know why I hadn't really thought about it, like a short and long-term kind of sensor, but it makes complete sense. And this is maybe offshooting a little bit into a side topic, but it was just making me think of um, some of the, I kind of call it diet fatigue factors, but it's similarly those kind of red symptoms of relative energy deficit um, in sport. And whether someone who is like very obese and they've lost maybe over 10% of their body weight, could they experience some of the same symptoms or all of the same symptoms as that person who has got to stage kind of levels of leanness is that possible for them? Because clearly they still have lots of body fat availability as like their yeah. longer term signal, uh, yeah, longer term signaling, but they've had that short term restriction as well. And I don't know if because they have, uh, this is getting into like body fat settling points and kind of that dual energy, uh, sorry, the dual model in terms of like upper and lower intervention points, which you talked about, which I thought was really cool as well. But yeah, yeah, is there, is there a possibility that someone with that level of fat mass could still feel all everything that this person who's got down to stage level of leanness could feel yeah i would say that there is uh overlap but it, but it's unlikely to be a completely synonymous you know a, a, like a complete duplication and, and the reason i say that is we we really do have these two distinct they're correlated but they're distinct signals of energy availability and so so for example when we look at the research on relative energy deficiency in athletic settings, and we say we we look at a, for example, a, a gymnastics team or a cross country team, and we start to say who has the greatest symptoms currently of relative energy deficiency, uh, it's not always the leanest people. In, in many cases, there will be people who actually are higher on the spectrum of body fat within that team. But because they're higher on the body fat spectrum within that team, and they probably unfortunately have a coach who's delivering some heavy handed and maybe not super good advice about, you know, how lean they have to be to be effective and competitive in that sport. A lot of times you'll see that the, the athletes with the higher body fat levels are going to be in the largest, uh, 
caloric deficits during the training period. And they will be experiencing, uh, in, in some cases, more symptoms of relative energy deficiency than some of their leaner uh, colleagues on their team, because those leaner individuals are in neutral to positive energy balance. They're not worried about losing weight during the training period. So they're just focused on fueling their training. So these really are two distinct things, but there does come a point. Uh, you're not going to find anyone who's 4% body fat and is like, no, I just, I just feel fine. Like, I feel great. Like, I mean, maybe there's like one or two people out there that are truly genetic uh, anomalies, but like, there comes a point where these these two, um, you know, there's these two different systems, these two different signals uh, and, and feedback loops. And absolutely, the short term deficit can be very impactful, even if you have plenty of body fat stored. But as that continues on and body fat gets depleted, 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 you get to a certain point where it's like, hey, you're 4%. I mean, Steve, you've been there after a bodybuilding show, right? You're still shredded. You know, you had a show three days ago, but you're you're in very positive energy balance, right? Because you went out after the show, whatever. I mean, do, do you feel recovered? Like, of, of course not. You don't, right? Because I, I, if I had to prioritize, I'd say, you know, the, the, the stronger signal of the two is, is the body fat depletion, because at a certain point that that is literally an explicit signal of starvation. Uh, so, so at a certain body fat level that really starts to take over. Um, but, but yeah, absolutely. People with higher body fat are not immune to relative energy deficiency in sport because it, it is, uh, some of those elements are dictated by the acute energy status rather than the long-term. Yeah, no, I think that's really well explained in the comparison to the, the bodybuilder who's like stage lean and then in a huge surplus, they're not like, they're not suddenly feeling fine. <laughs> if anything, no they feel worse than ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, depending on what you've eaten, you might feel a little yeah. bit bloated and a bit of a mess and the water retention can be nasty for some people. So I'm yeah. thankfully that I've, I've never got there. Uh, and I guess that leads to a nice topic here because you've been talking about um, adaptation. And for the longest time, it was thought that you could damage your metabolism in that like when you get to the points we're talking about, people would think, oh, clearly something's damaged and people would be scared to be in an energy deficit. So like, oh, or too harsh of one, like I'm going to damage my the metabolism at some point. Uh, so yeah, it's, I don't know if you want to kind of just debunk that, explain why that isn't something that is of a concern. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that's it, the way I approached the article um, about reverse dieting is basically I started with a series of questions. Uh, I, I was beating myself up about how to structure this thing because it's a beast. It's long. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm trying to directly respond to key questions that come up a lot. So I'm just going to do it that way. Like that's how I'm going to structure it. So the first question I asked was, do metabolic rates get damaged? And the answer is flatly no. Um, we know what causes metabolic adaptation, those two stimuli, short-term and long-term depletion of energy. And therefore, we know what theoretically should resolve or reverse metabolic adaptation. And that is get out of a deficit and restore the depleted fat mass. And based on essentially all the evidence available, it works. You know, if, if you get back out of a deficit and you get back to a baseline uh, body fat level, you're pretty much back to back to normal, right? Back normal for you, you know? So a, a lot of people think, well, I, you know, because I did this dieting, now I'm, I have this damaged metabolism and I'm, you know, it, it, you know, I, I, I have this huge hole that I need to dig out of and actually do something to rectify. 
um, when you look at the research, you know, uh, for example, the biggest loser, right? That, that the, the biggest loser study where they did the most extreme. I mean, it, if you were going to try to force metabolic adaptation to occur, like you would do the biggest loser intervention, right? It's so extreme, very low calorie, tons of exercise, uh, extremely rapid rate of weight loss, huge changes in body weight. And so, you know, th there was a six-year follow-up study where they were looking at, you know, okay, does, does metabolic adaptation at the end of this weight loss intervention actually determine who regains weight and who is able to maintain effectively? And the answer was simply no. It just wasn't predictive. Uh, but then the other question was, okay, well, six years later, who still has metabolic adaptation? And I think the, the narrative in evidence-based fitness is, well, you know, that the people who regained weight must have regained it because they have this metabolic damage and this is just following them around and it's going to cause them major issues in the future if they ever want to lose the weight again that's the complete opposite of the truth six years after the this really aggressive uh intervention that caused dramatic metabolic adaptation the highest levels of persistent metabolic adaptation were observed in the people who were successfully keeping the weight off the people who were, you know, kind of reverting back to their baseline body fat level, they were reversing their metabolic adaptation. And, and it's not it's not difficult to see why in hindsight, right? It's, well, there's two causes for metabolic adaptation. You just reversed both of them. And here we go. You, you know, you're good. And so in I think that's one of the key reasons that we distinguish between metabolic damage and metabolic adaptation. Adaptations are uh, physiological accommodations responding to a particular scenario. And when that scenario changes, the adaptation changes uh, versus damage. That implies you broke something. And until you do something to fix it intentionally, it will remain broken. Right. And so adaptation is just flatly a more accurate way to represent it because, you know, it, when you start to reverse the things that caused it, you start to reverse the adaptation. Do you not see the progress you would like? Are you sick of writing your own programs? Or perhaps you need some accountability in order to stick with a the plan? Then it's time to start working with us. We at Revive Stronger offer a truly personalized coaching service. You'll get more than just an email with some macros or random cookie cutter program. With Revive Stronger, you will be the center of our attention. You will receive your own fully individualized training protocol alongside a customized nutritional strategy. We created the coaching around your needs, wants, personal preferences, and your own unique lifestyle. Every single week, we delve into your program in order to make appropriate adjustments so that we get the most out of your time and the best possible outcome. We help both female and male athletes to seriously change their body composition by adding more muscle mass and decreasing fat tissue. No matter if you're a competitive bodybuilder or just want to look better, if you need help with your progress and taking your physique to the next level, our coaching is for you. It's time to make a change. Sign up today and let's revive stronger. Yeah, I think it's, I don't know if it spawned from the idea that people expected that when they get back into a surplus or even like energy maintenance that at that lower level of body fat they should be feeling just the same as they did before or be able to eat just as much as they did before and i guess that's where people get into problems if they're doing like refeeds based off their off season or their diet break based off their off seasons they're like well you're three months into prep you've adapted quite a bit to the deficit you're a much smaller individual that's going to be a big surplus for you now and it's like oh i'm damaged but it's actually 
like you said, it's just adapting to the, the scenario that you're in right now. You're not demanding as much energy burn uh, to sustain where you are. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we, we will see, uh, you know, a, a modest, uh, you know, when we compare, uh, you know, naturally lean people to people who are, you know, what they would call uh, at a reduced body weight to people who had obesity and then got down to a, a kind of an equivalent body size and body composition. It does seem, you know, like people who are in a weight reduced state ha- uh, moving forward have a slightly reduced energy expenditure compared to people who were naturally that size all along. But but it's uh, very importantly, uh, it's a modest difference. It, it's not major. And that doesn't seem to be meaningfully predictive of anyone's ability to successfully maintain that weight loss. So it's a thing that exists, but not a thing that is highly predictive of success. So a lot of people think, oh man, I I got down to, you know, I, I got down from 330 pounds to 180, and I'm not able to maintain the same activity and dietary habits that kept me at 330. And and that should be an expectation on the front end that that it shouldn't be taken lightly. You know, when, when you are trying to induce a dramatic and persistent change in body composition, you will have to uh, sustain a change in behavior. And ultimately, changes in behavior and the ability to sustain those over time uh, those are very predictive of, of long-term weight loss success or weight maintenance success. So, yeah, I, I do think that you're you're onto something, and that there's a mismatch where some people I think have a tendency to believe, well, the weight loss phase is going to be hard, but when I get down from 330 to 180, once I'm at, once I'm there, I'll be able to kind of do my thing again. But doing your thing is is ultimately going to be pushing you back up toward that you know that that initial baseline body weight. One example I always think of is, uh, and the more females that I end up working with and interacting with who get to stage levels of condition, the kind of the, the where they are with their cardio, their steps, like then their intake, like some of these females are doing hours of cardio a day, a thousand, maybe some people have to go under a thousand calories. And it's just like it compared and in their off seasons, they could be 2000 plus calories, no, no cardio steps. It's like, but that's that big amount of body fat that they've lost and especially for females, they kind of particularly are trying to hold on to that for more, even more like the uh, survival and uh, reproductive reasons and things like that. So yeah, it always shocks me when I see like the lengths women have to go to, to get to stage levels of leanness. And then some people try and maintain it or they were reverse diet. And it's actually, that's something I would ask. Um, and I was thinking about, cause you talked about, um, the fact that these things can be reversed. So the, the kind of metabolic damage isn't real if we reverse the things that have kind of caused us to get there. I would presume, because for females, obviously they can lose their menstrual cycle and that can lead to kind of potentially longer term issues if it's not resolved. Is that something that would be outside of the adaptations we're talking about? Or where, where does that fit into that puzzle? I don't know if that's something you've thought about. Uh, menstrual cycle dysregulation? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So menstrual cycle dysregulation, um, you know, I've been fortunate to collaborate with a lot of folks on a lot of research papers over the last, uh, I guess it's getting close to 10 years now, Uh, eight eight years, I guess. Um, And we often do look at, you know, within this area of literature of of metabolic adaptation, diet recovery, we often look at the menstrual cycle um, and it, you know, it's, it's very clear that at a certain point in contest preparation, it's quite common for the, for the menstrual cycle to either become 
disrupted, dysregulated, or 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 for it to just cease altogether uh, temporarily. Uh, restoration of of regular uh, a regular menstrual cycle, um, you know, kind of getting back to where that individual started. I would say it's the most complicated factor of diet recovery. Uh, it is very unpredictable. We know what what does it, but the question is how long will it take, and to what it, to what extent do we have to regain weight and and increase calories? Uh, I remember a study. You know, leptin is is a cheat code, right? So l- reductions in leptin are driving the vast majority of what we call metabolic adaptation. And so, if you can inject exogenous leptin. You're cheating. You, like you, you just put in the thing that that is causing the issue. So, like, boom, it reverses a lot of it. Like, and and there's studies to to indicate exogenous le- leptin is very effective for reversing uh, uh, metabolic adaptation. But even uh, studies using exogenous leptin with lifestyle interventions, when you look at the time course of when the menstrual cycle is recovered in, in women who have very low energy availability. I mean, the, the variability is enormous. It, it really is, even with so strong an intervention. Uh, you know, and, and one case study that comes to mind, there was a, a female figure competitor who they documented the weight loss and then the recovery. I think it was 70 something weeks it took for, for her menstrual cycle to actually oh. be restored. And that involved, and it wasn't like she just like got down to competition weight and stayed there. I mean, she ended up, I believe, regaining, you know, she ended up at a higher body weight long after the diet, not not like dramatically higher, but, you know, she regained all the weight and then some, and it still took some time wow. for, for the menstrual cycle to come back. I guess that's one of, as a man, I always make sure to remind myself that you cannot treat females like little men, uh, which unfortunately a pervasive number of coaches do do in the bodybuilding industry, particularly, I guess it's male dominated in that sense. So it's a good reminder for like, I mean, for that fact and that the, it's still an area that is, I don't know if it's, you would say it's kind of not heavily researched. So, cause there's, or there's just so in individual difference with people and how their recovery goes that it's kind of a complicated matter. And you can't say like, if you've lost your menstrual cycle, can we say you can guarantee you're going to get it back so long as you give it time and you kind of reverse the things that you did to get to that position. I don't know if we're in a position we can do that. You know, it's difficult. I mean, everybody's different and you will hear about situations, uh, that, that are, uh, different than kind of the standard um, time course. But I think there is plenty of research to show that in many in many scenarios, I, I think kind of the typical expectation is if you are able to restore body fat to a level that uh, to, to skip ahead a little bit is above the lower intervention point. So basically, we might get into that model in more detail later. But basically, everyone knows when they reach body fat level where they say, I don't think I'm I don't think I'm supposed to be here, right? You start to feel very different. Energy level goes down, libido, uh, hormone panels start to get out of whack. And that that lower threshold is a little bit different for everybody. So I, I think we have a, a, a decent amount of evidence that it, it, with a, a female competitor who has lost her menstrual cycle or, or experienced substantial dysregulation, if we can get that individual back into that body fat range where, where they're really comfortable and get them back into neutral or slightly positive energy balance, those ingredients plus time 
usually involves restoration of the menstrual cycle. And if not, then, you know, it's something where you'd have to get a medical professional involved. But like you were saying, this is a very uh, new area of research. There was actually, uh, I forget the author, there was a systematic review or a, a scoping review that was published within the last month or two about diet recovery in physique athletes. And uh, Helms covered it in mass. It might actually be the the edition that's publishing like tomorrow. I can't remember exactly uh, the timeline, but basically it was it was a scoping review, very small number of studies. Most of them were case studies. Uh, the ones that weren't case studies, like we had a study that was like 15 people. We, we had another study that was like seven people. You know, I mean, it's it's tough to get to get huge cohorts of people and not that they would even let you, you know, for, for you to say, Hey, let's go ahead and mess up your menstrual cycle and then just see what happens as we try to unravel what we've done to it. You know, that's going to be a hard sell for an ethics board. And I guess it's, uh, at least, and as far as I'm aware, the, the more time you're without the menstrual cycle is generally like, it's it's not a good sign. It's generally something you want to kind of get back as soon as possible. And for me, that's another big reason why reverse dieting, especially for females, like it's it's particularly counterproductive. Like it could arguably be like for men, obviously for males and females, it's not great for health to try and sustain a level of body fat that you're not really meant to be at. But for females in particular, there could be potentially longer term or harsher consequences. Yeah. I mean, there is one thing I'd like to clarify a bit. So, you know, we talk about the major downside of reverse dieting being that we are delaying that recovery from a pretty substantial diet. That kind of assumes that you're at the end of your diet, you're in a deficit and you're at a very low body fat level and you're just very slowly increasing from there, you know, and and some people have have kind of, um, I wouldn't say criticized my article, but they've said, you know, hey, some people with reverse dieting, they get out of a deficit right away they go straight to an estimated maintenance and then they start increasing calories from there. And in that case, you know, if you're trying to stay shredded, you're still screwed. You're not, you're not going to recover. Right. Um, but, but even if you're not shredded, if you just got down to a, a comfortable, healthy body weight, jumped to maintenance and started reverse dieting from there, uh, based on the evidence, we, we have no reason to believe that that's doing anything at all, uh, essentially. So it's, you know, if, if you're doing the reverse diet where it's, you're starting in a deficit and slowly climbing from there, we could say that that is an intervention that is in the vast majority of cases, un, like it's worse than going to maintenance, right? So it's actually a, an, an intervention that is kind of worse than useless in that scenario. Like it's, it's <laughs> yeah. delaying you from getting where you want to go, basically. Yeah. Um, but if you're jumping straight to maintenance and then reverse dieting from there, it it just doesn't seem to work uh, based on 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 the evidence available. So when when you're talking about these two different applications, you know some people said, oh, there's like a figure or two in your article where you assume that the person is reverse dieting from a deficit rather than starting at maintenance. And um, I understand that criticism, but I was like, you know, if you look at the rest of the article, there's ample reason to believe if you're starting at maintenance and reversing from there. Uh, you're just doing a maintenance phase, basically. Or if you stick with the reverse, now you're just doing a slow bulk. I mean, there, yeah. there's really no physiological magic going on there for the vast majority of applications. Yeah, yeah, really, very well said. Um, because yeah, <laughs> like you said, if you're basically just extending the time, you're in less of a deficit, 
I mean, that's got to be the, the worst scenario out of every single one. Um, but still, yeah, like yeah, you said, it, it's either taking you further from your goal or not taking you anywhere closer to your goal is, is basically the, the two potential scenarios there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then, yeah, the next kind of segment was talking about uh, the low metabolic rate playing a role for easy weight gain or struggle for weight loss, which I think was really interesting because I think a lot of people, again, even potentially in the evidence-based kind of sector that we're in, think if you have a kind of slower metabolic rate for, I don't know, the average person at your body size, what have you, you're going to be more likely to gain weight or struggle to lose weight. But there was actually that recent Martin's paper and you have some other ones there that you're probably going to dig into that kind of contradicted that thought process. Yeah, I mean, it's really a series of paper uh, of papers by Martin's and colleagues. Uh, really good work. Um, yeah, there, There's a few lab groups that I'm like, I look at their work and I say, if I were just generally better, I would be doing that. Like if I had the, <laughs> if I had the patience to stay fully invested in the research world full time and, you know, I was a professor somewhere and I was just much more talented, I would be doing what they're doing. It's like this Martin's group is doing excellent work. Uh, Grant Tinsley does incredible work. They're, they're like the people where I'm like in a, in a, all, in a different universe where I was simply a better man. That is what I would be doing. Uh, and just way more talented and smart. But Martin's had this series of papers where they were like, okay, so metabolic adaptation, does it exist? Yes. Okay. But intuitively we assume, oh, okay, well, I know how energy balance works, right? Energy intake versus expenditure. If my expenditure is going down, surely that has to be devastating for my ability to, to successfully proceed with weight loss and then maintain weight loss after it's done. Uh, but in a series of papers, they basically were just like, well, how much does this actually matter? Like the people who are experiencing these larger, you know, larger magnitudes of metabolic adaptation, to what extent does it truly hold them back? Uh, you know, in terms of real numbers, magnitudes. And what they found was basically in a series of three papers, you, you can summarize them very concisely. Metabolic adaptation does exist and it affects some people more than it affects others. That's true. The people who experience a lot of metabolic adaptation uh, on a fixed intervention, they might lose less weight, but, but not by necessarily that much. It, it's not like we have people who are fully resistant to weight loss. And this is a very common observation. It's usually like, you know, they did a study where the average weight loss was like 14 kilograms. And the people who were really getting hit with metabolic adaptation in a big way, instead of losing 14 kilograms, they were losing like 12, you know, 11 and a half. And if you talk to someone who claims to be, you know, really weight loss resistant, really struggles to lose weight. And you said, well, I tell you what, I can give you an intervention right now. You're going to lose 11 and a half kilograms. Does that, does that feel like a failure? No one's going to say yes. You know, I mean, so, so one of their studies, they found, yeah, was slightly less weight loss for the people who experienced the most metabolic adaptation, but everyone here was succeeding, you know, and there's a very, a very clear way that you can circumvent that, which is just reduce the calories a little more, right? So in these interventions, it's like everybody's kind of going through the same thing. Steve, you're a great coach. You know that you, you can't just give everyone the same intervention and say, oh, this will work the same way for everyone. There are going to be some people where you have to say, hey, the, the, the nature of reality is such that we're going to have to put your calories a little bit lower than someone else. Um, 
but not catastrophically lower. We're talking about small differences. Uh, the other study was they were looking not at how much weight was lost, but how how much time does it take to get to a target weight loss? And it was the same thing. Uh, basically, some people experienced a lot more metabolic metabolic adaptation than others. Uh, the people who experienced a lot still were very successful in the weight loss phase. They just needed uh, a couple more weeks, a few more weeks to get to the target, which was an ambitious weight loss target, by the way. It was a, a very clinically meaningful amount of weight loss. And then they, the third paper, they were looking at, okay, well, after a successful weight loss intervention with you know pretty substantial amounts of weight loss, does the amount of metabolic adaptation you experienced actually predict your weight regain over the next year or the next two years? And the answer was flatly no. Uh, you know, in, when we look at that study, when we look at the biggest loser study by Fothergill and colleagues, where we found metabolic adaptation at the six-year mark was actually an indicator of successful maintenance. It was not a predictor of of regression to the initial body fat. You know, the people who maintained weight loss had the most metabolic adaptation at that point, which is an, a, a revelation that should be intuitive. They were still maintaining a lower body weight, and therefore there's a reason for adaptation to be present. Um, but yeah, so when we, when we look at the evidence and, and say, okay, let's not just rationalize hypothetically how this should work. Let's look at the numbers and say, to what extent is metabolic adaptation really holding people back or setting themselves up for weight regain? What we find is uh, it does exist. It adds a little bit of friction to the weight loss process. But that that friction can be overcome in very straightforward ways. You know, make some calorie adjustments, extend the dietary timeline, take a little more time to get where you're going, uh, and then when it comes to weight weight regain, uh, it's simply not not a major predictor. Uh, when we look at the the research that actually identifies you know legitimate predictors of weight regain, uh, the vast majority of them are psychological and behavioral, uh, and and that I fought that for a long time. Uh, you know, when, when you get trained in kind of physiology, like, you know, my my department was housed in the School of Medicine. We were the applied physiology laboratory. You always want to say, oh, no, there's uh, we, we need to find the molecule that's interacting with the hype. There's there's some secret molecule out there. You know, there's if we capture your breath, we'll be able to identify the characteristic. But this is good old fashioned psychology and behavior in most cases, which uh, as, a, as a physiology person, I, I have to uh, accept my limitation. And that's why I'm, as I look over, I've got about eight psychology textbooks that I've got <laughs> in the past three years is because I realized if I'm going to be yeah. effective, I, I have to just follow the data and, and not say, well, but I got trained in physiology. Can that just answer everything? Right. It, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it always baffles me how intertwined like physiology and psychology is, and like almost to the point you can't pull it apart necessarily. Uh, yeah. So, so would this be a fair statement to say? So, two people, one's adapting faster, both in the in in the sorry, start with a five hundred calorie deficit. That person who's adapted faster, maybe it's gone to four hundred. So now to kind of get it to the five hundred again to keep that on pace with the other person who's not adapted, we drop a hundred calories, a slice of bread. Would that person relatively both exhibit the same um, relative amount of kind of fatigue in terms of diet fatigue because i think people would expect oh, if that person who's adapting you have to reduce their food more they're probably feeling the diet more uh, as a whole would would it be that actually it's just relative so that person who maybe they can get away with 2500 calories be in that deficit the same as the other person but they're on 500 calories less in that same deficit is it all relative 
I, I do believe it. it's, uh, if not all relative, very, 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 very relative, right? So I, I, the our body can only respond to the, the signals that it has the ability to to really um, assess, right? Like it it can only keep its thumb on the pulse of the things that that are that are truly being integrated in these uh, you know these systems that regulate energy intake and expenditure. And what's far more impactful is not the total number of calories you eat in a day, but it's the relationship between your energy intake and your energy expenditure. So if you have adapted such that there is a smaller gap between your intake and expenditure, you know, re-implementing that that standard deficit, like you mentioned, and kind of equating that deficit should feel physiologically very similar. Psychologically, there's a difference, right? So you know, you can look down at a plate and say, hey, there's not a lot of food on that. But but the person over there has more food on their plate. And I don't like that. So psychologically, that can be a real thing. And psychological effects are real effects. That That's where a, a really skilled coach comes in and, and helps people kind of process that. But we intuitively know that to be true, right? Like, I mean, um, endurance athletes are, they often eat you know, 3,500, 4,000 calories a day. Um, and, you know, they, they usually feel quite content doing that because they're out yeah. there running so many miles every week, right? Like it, it's very, very clear that that our hunger and satiety regulation are, you know, those th- those elements that go into diet fatigue, they're not just about the raw number of calories consumed. It's the calories consumed relative to energy expenditure. So yeah, reestablishing that deficit at a lower absolute calorie intake theoretically should feel quite similar. Um, and yeah, I mean, you, you'll, you'll see that all the time. You'll see people who are, I mean, Steve, you've seen like bodybuilders who are able to get shredded on relatively high calorie intakes, right? I mean, like you'll, you'll see some people every now and then and it's like, dude, that's like where I start my prep and you're two weeks out. Uh, they don't really feel that great. Like they're, they're still hurting. It's like, well, congratulations. Here's your, your, your medal or your trophy for being able to diet on 2,400 calories, but you still feel like absolute shit. Uh, and yeah, it, I, I do believe that it's almost all relative there. Losing weight fast while maintaining muscle mass. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It isn't though. It's reality and we know how to do it. And we will help you achieve this. The Minicup Movement is an eight-week fat loss program to make you lose a huge chunk of fat while maintaining muscle mass at the same time. We will support you from the beginning to the end so that you see the results you would like to and come out of it much stronger. You'll receive a fully automated spreadsheet that is based on your nutritional needs. You can choose between six different male and female training templates. Over 30 videos will guide you through each and every single step of the minicut so that you're getting the most out of your journey and that you always know what to do. But the best thing is that you can start whenever you want. The Minicup movement is open 24-7. So if you want to learn more or you're ready to sign up, hit the link in the description below. So let's revive stronger together. I think that's so well said, uh, said, sorry, because yeah, I actually just had a client who competed uh, fairly recently and he he didn't drop below like 3,000 calories his whole prep. But like he was feeling it as hard as anyone else is feeling it but i think there is that psychological component where if you're having to remove food quite regularly and you look at your calories and you're like i know people who are the same body weight as me who are on like much more and then you just get into your head and so almost sometimes like re- just removing the numbers can play to your advantage because you're like you're not thinking about it 
as much. But even if you're having to take stuff away regularly to make those changes, psychologically, that must just hurt a bit more than that person that's just like steady, just losing nicely week to week. Yeah, for sure. And then, so the next thing, actually, one of the things I wanted to touch on was uh, there was a note about those being more susceptible to adaptation have a higher baseline total daily energy expenditure. And my thought there was, was is that because their NEAT is generally higher and they see larger reductions, therefore, in their NEAT? Is, is that where that was going? It's quite possible. Yeah, I, I do think it's it's probably one of the more interesting findings that I included in this article is that there are now a couple papers reporting this. So there are what we would call metabolic phenotypes. And a phenotype is broadly speaking, just kind of a set of observable characteristics. In this case, when we talk about a metabolic phenotype, we're talking about characteristics of someone's energy expenditure, kind of a general cluster of observations. So there are some folks who have a thrifty metabolic phenotype. These people are thrifty when it comes to how they manage energy. So if you overfeed someone who's thrifty, it's kind of like giving money to a person who's economically thrifty, right? They will put in a savings account or you know invest it in the stock market and I guess these days just watch it disappear. Uh, but yeah, so thrifty, you know, when a thrifty individual in terms of metabolic phenotype is overfed in a surplus, they readily gain fat mass very efficiently. When they start to diet, they experience greater magnitudes of metabolic adaptation. Uh, and that's both in terms of a long-term diet and even in terms of a short-term fasting, like a one-day fast. Now, the opposite is a spendthrift metabolic phenotype. These are people that are very wasteful of energy. So you overfeed them, they tend to ramp up their energy expenditure uh, very precipitously, and they resist fat gain during overfeeding. Now, when they diet, they really don't experience large amounts of metabolic adaptation. Now, it's important to recognize these fall on a spectrum. Right. So it's not A or B. It's are you kind of closer to thrifty or closer to spendthrift? And most of us, by definition, probably fall in the middle. But there's these two kind of general templates of how people respond to energy. And something that seems to be a uh, somewhat, I mean, I'd like to see more data confirming this time and time and time and time again. But it seems like people who are, you know, of the spendthrift metabolic phenotype, in your mind, you're thinking, oh, they're, you know, they're wasteful of energy. They must be just staying lean at 4,000 calories a day and living the good life. That's really not the case. When we look at these two different groups, we don't see that people with a, uh, a spendthrift phenotype out in the wild who you know people are just kind of doing their regular thing they're not consistently leaner than the people with thrifty phenotypes and you would expect that their their kind of baseline energy expenditure is higher but it actually isn't uh, it seems to be actually a little bit lower so i think a lot the reason that i brought these observations into this article is because it kind of gets at a premise of reverse dieting that i reject and that premise is that people are, you know, they're they're in a position where they say, listen, I have more body fat than I'd like, and it's always been that way. Uh, the thing that has predisposed me to carrying more body fat than I would like to is the fact that I have chronically low energy expenditure. And I actually made that even worse via metabolic damage. And now I'm really stuck because I have more body fat than I want. I already had low energy expenditure and I made it you know, semi-permanently lower via metabolic damage. 
I need reverse dieting to get me out of this jam just so I can try to get, you know, as lean as these spendthrift people out here. You know, a lot of people diagnose themselves, whether they know the term or not, explicitly or implicitly, as being uh, kind of a having a thrifty phenotype. And therefore, it's making them have lower baseline energy expenditure, higher baseline body fat. That just doesn't seem to play out. And so this this thrifty versus spendthrift phenotype, it's very fascinating from a research perspective. And we can look at how it affects various things, but it, it doesn't predict much about where you're at at baseline. And if anything, it predicts things that are counterintuitive. It, it would say, well, actually, you know, you're spendthrift, but you have a lower total daily energy expenditure at baseline, which would be unexpected. Uh, but where these really become useful and informative and where they really start to play a role in reverse dieting is when you look at how people with these phenotypes react to changes in energy intake. Overfeeding and underfeeding is where, you know, at baseline, they, these thrifty and spendthrift individuals, based on random sampling, they, they seem to look pretty similar, generally speaking. And if anything, spendthrift individuals have lower baseline uh, energy expenditure. But it's when we get into over and underfeeding that we see pretty clear divergences. Uh, and like you said, it's very possible that people who have a thrifty phenotype, the reason they're experiencing larger drops in energy expenditure during underfeeding, whether it's acute or chronic, it could simply be because they're starting in a counterintuitively kind of inflated state where, where they have, for whatever reason, kind of a higher baseline level. It's very odd to see this discrepancy between kind of baseline status and these reactions to different um, perturbations or adjustments in energy intake. I do expect that in the next 10 years, we will have a lot more clarity about what is going on with that baseline difference that that seems so counterintuitive. I think we're I, I think there's work to be done there. And without a set of data to mess around with, I don't want to speculate on exactly how to marry up these uh, apparent contradictions within the metabolic metabolic phenotype um, uh, concept. But what's interesting is uh, counterintuitive things when they're repeatable we have to take them seriously <laughs> and it does seem pretty consistent that we can identify someone as having a thrifty phenotype based on the amount of metabolic adaptation they experience during underfeeding those individuals are less responsive to overfeeding if we're trying to ramp up metabolic rate um but but yeah the idea that a thrifty phenotype is putting you into that that scenario I described where you are both higher body fat at baseline, lower energy expenditure at baseline, and you know, suffering the effects of a previously damaged metabolic rate. It, you know, that doesn't seem to be supported. And like I implied earlier, the the to me, the biggest um issue with reverse dieting by far for the non-physique athlete application. One of well, there's there's two major, 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 major shortcomings. One is it's framed as a solution for people with a thrifty phenotype. And like I said, if you overfeed someone with a spendthrift phenotype, they will ramp up energy expenditure and resist fat gain. That is not observed for people who have a thrifty phenotype. So reverse dieting, the, the whole premise is that based on overfeeding studies, you can just kind of ramp up your energy expenditure my expectation based on the evidence is that that effect is purely driven by the spendthrift individuals within those studies. And we see the variability is immense. It is huge. Some people have that response. Some people don't. 
And the people who are using reverse dieting to leverage that response are very clearly unlikely to experience that. So that's a huge, huge limitation of how people are applying reverse dieting. The other major limitation, and this is the one that really kind of uh, re really makes me question the concept with, with a high level of scrutiny. A lot of times you'll see people and say, okay, explain to me reverse dieting. G give me the pitch. Give me the case for it, right? And they'll say, well, so here's the thing. Metabolic adaptation happens at the end of a diet or in a reduced uh, a state of reduced body weight relative to baseline, you're in this position where you are just primed for fat regain. And what we need to do is navigate that situation very carefully. And the way that we're going to do that is overfeeding to ramp up your metabolic rate. And I believe that's going to occur based on research of people who are overfeeding from baseline. So the premise, the entire reason we need it, is usually explained in chapter one as, you know, after weight loss, we're in this very unique, very specific physiological state where we have to be extremely careful. And the entire premise of the intervention is based on a fully different physiological state of people who are at baseline in their natural body weight. So I, I don't understand how the premise for needing reverse dieting can be based on the unique precarious state of being at a reduced body weight after a diet, but then all of the evidence to support why you would do it is based on a fully different metabolic state of people who are at their natural baseline and overfeeding. So, you know, I, I think on many, many different levels, the entire concept really starts to break down. Uh, and then on top of that, that unique situation of a physique athlete after competition, we have two studies that I think you could claim looked at what we might call reverse dieting in a, a pretty rigorously observed scenario. There's a study by Longstrom and colleagues. It was a case series looking at, I think, seven physique athletes. And I, I did the stats for that paper years ago. And it was very clear, regaining fat facilitates recovery after competition. The people who tried to stay lean very uh, very substantially suppressed their time course of recovery. You know, reverse dieting in that context, delayed recovery, not good. Uh, and that's in terms of, you know, leptin levels, and but also in terms of just metabolic rate. So the idea that they were just ramping up their energy expenditure while staying lean, completely contradicted by the evidence. The other scenario that's rele relevant to that, this is the one piece of not new evidence, which is from about... Eh, the 40s, uh, the, the Minnesota starvation experiment. Everybody talks about this as the kind of the, the first real investigation where you'd say that was about metabolic adaptation, right? And it was some of the, the most extreme metabolic adaptation observed to date in the in the literature. These were people who, who were conscientious objectors, uh, you know, uh, opted out of military service during World War II, were opted into this study where they were kind of guided through a semi-starvation period where they got as lean as a human would want to get. And that was through dietary restriction and, uh, you know, some, some physical activity as well. People always talk about the diet portion, but rarely talk about the refeeding portion. And there are two really interesting observations about the refeeding portion. There was a controlled period right after the diet, and then an uncontrolled period where they're like, okay, go do what you want. We're just going to observe from this point forward. And in the controlled uh, 
element, the controlled uh, period of refeeding, there were four different levels at which calories were introduced and ramped up. So there are people who did fast regain, kind of fast, you know, slower, and then very slow weight regain. The two observations that I think are really interesting are number one, the very slow weight regain uh, intervention, the slowest group was an abject failure. They midway adjusted the calorie level, the, the increments, because they said these people are not recovering. It, it failed. And that was with a 400 calorie increase from the end of the diet. So it's not like they added 10 grams of carbs, right? I mean, they added 100, you know, mathematically the equivalent of 100 grams of carbs. And they said, they're not recovering. We, we need to intervene and, and ramp it up faster. Um, so it just failed in terms of facilitating recovery. But without question, over the course of that controlled refeeding period, there was differences in how much weight was regained. And you say, okay, so that sucked for the slow group. And you know there are actually quotes from participants in the study saying, yeah, the refeeding phase was worse than the starvation phase. I hated it. And actually the Longstrom study was initially hoping to implement a lot more control over those post-diet, uh, those post-show diets. But it's so hard to do, Steve. I mean, you've been there. You, you've had clients there. Trying to even implement a reverse diet after you're shredded is, I, it's an, it's not a feasible intervention in the vast majority of cases. So anyway, they they found that they said, yeah, everyone hates this. It sucks. It also doesn't work for recovery. They just weren't recovering, so they had to speed it up. But the one saving grace theoretically is they did have a difference where the fast groups regained a ton of weight early in the process. The slow groups, it was a very slow and steady, gradual increase in body weight. So you'd say, okay. Well, that sucked for you going slow, but now you've gotten through that nasty initial weight regain period. You know, you've built up your metabolic rate. You should be in a great position to have a much leaner off season and feel great. What happened when the slow people, uh, slow weight regain group went back to ad libitum feeding left to their own devices? They immediately caught up. They immediately regained way more weight than the groups that just gained it earlier. And everyone ends up in the same place. So I think when you look at reverse dieting and the concept going into it, it's trying to use overfeeding protocols and apply them to a completely different context, which is post-diet weight recovery, where we know people have a higher susceptibility to fat regain. That, that's just a fact. The, the concept that going slower will circumvent that is, is without basis physiologically. There, there's no evidence for that. Um, the interventions that have tried to, to do these reverse dieting uh, approaches so far in both cases, I think you would categorically say that they failed, in my opinion. And again, this is from someone who was cautiously optimistic about reverse dieting back in 2014. Um, to the best of my knowledge, I was the first person to put it in a peer-reviewed paper in 2014 and the second person to put it in a peer-reviewed paper in 2017. Uh, and I don't know, maybe the third person as well in the 2020. I'm not really sure about that one. At a certain point, you lose track. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I mean... You, at a certain point, you have to be able to say, hey, like this was an interesting concept. Theoretically, it was exciting. Uh, empirically, it doesn't seem to work in these really shredded scenarios. It doesn't seem to circumvent that preferential fat regain. If we try to stifle fat regain, it seems to suppress recovery. And then when we look at more you know, general population applications that are not starting from a shredded body fat level, if we pay any attention at all, 
to the research on metabolic phenotypes, it, it seems very, very clear that the people who stand to gain the most from a controlled overfeeding period in terms of increasing expenditure, uh, these are the people who simply would would never be using uh, reverse dieting. Like it, it's people, you know, people who when they overfeed, they are very resistant to fat regain. These are not the people who are saying, I really need reverse dieting. It's usually the people who, you know, have a, an, a, an experience of metabolic adaptation during weight loss. And they say, man, I keep experiencing metabolic adaptation. I want to do this overfeeding stuff, this reverse dieting, so I can ramp up my energy expenditure. And the two issues with that, if you're someone who experiences a lot of metabolic adaptation, you know, you have a thrifty phenotype and you are not going to experience a pronounced increase in energy expenditure during overfeeding, uh, you know, in, unless someone rejects the entirety of the metabolic phenotype research, which would be a precarious stance to take. Um, and then the, the other component I should mention is that there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever that hypothetically, let's say someone, you know, had a thrifty phenotype and somehow they were able to build up their energy expenditure through slow overfeeding. I'm very skeptical that would happen, uh, or at least they wouldn't have an adaptive increase beyond just gaining weight and being in positive energy balance. We have absolutely no reason to believe that that would carry forward into the next diet. Because when we talk about the magnitude of metabolic adaptation in these thriftier individuals, it literally, we can observe it in a one day fast. I mean, th this is a, a something that happens very, very rapidly. And there's, and again, these are people who, based on the evidence so far, they seem to be starting their diets with higher total daily energy expenditure, right? And then the moment they shift to negative energy balance, they start to have the, these more aggressive metabolic adaptations relative to their counterparts. So we have no reason to believe that reverse uh, reverse dieting would help them get to a higher off-season body weight or or pre-diet or off-season energy expenditure or pre-diet energy expenditure but even if they did we have absolutely no reason to believe that it would persist as they entered their next diet and and as far as i as far as i can see in the evidence we would expect that they would be right back to square one I, there's a lot that you said there, and it was very good. I had so yeah, many I thoughts. Yeah, I probably just rambled for like 20 <laughs> minutes. but No, yeah. it, was, it, was, it was really, really good and well explained. I had lots of different thoughts that were kind of shooting through my head. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Flor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically, we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is going to be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can, you can lock your journey. There's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics.
discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're gonna be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.